Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Steve Bateman, helping believers be more discerning by spotting some common fallacies. For example, in the evangelical world, this has become real common. If you disagree with someone that you think is left of you, you just use the pejorative term woke. You call them woke. And uh, then you don't have to do any hard work of, of intellectually explaining what you mean by that. First of all, you got to define the term. Mm-hmm. That so many people use it differently. Uh, so just calling them a name, that's, that's not an argument. Steve Bateman, next. The scriptures tell believers to not be deceived, to test everything, and to love God with our minds. This is increasingly important in the online world so many of us frequently inhabit. It's often filled with rampant disinformation and partisan manipulation, which can lead to us being deceived. With that in mind, we contacted pastor and Pilgrim Radio speaker Steve Bateman to discuss his Gospel Coalition piece, Common Fallacies in an Age of Outrage. He pastors First Bible Church in Decatur, Alabama. Pastor Bateman, what led you to write about these fallacies? Well, actually, two or three things. One one of them, one of the motivations was theological. Uh, because the article is about clear thinking probably more than anything else and discernment, and that's who our God is. God is a clear thinking God. He's a rational being. He has an orderly mind. He's logical, reasonable, coherent. His word is coherent. And uh, so to be godly, uh, that's one of his uh, attributes that is communicable, I think, is to learn to think like God. So one of the reasons would be theological, but the other would be uh, pastoral. Uh, there are a lot of practical practical implications for this. First of all, in terms of helping uh, God's people grow in their holiness, uh, the holiness is essentially loving obedience to the commands of the Lord. And there are just many commands throughout Scripture for us to think. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Uh, when the scripture says several times, be, do not be deceived, that's, that's, in, that's an imperative. That's not a suggestion. We're commanded to not be deceived, which means that we have uh, to have, there's a reasonable exp- expectation that we learn the skills that are necessary to discern the truth. Um, when Paul says in Philippians chapter four, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, pure, lovely, think on these things. Well, if we're going to think on the things that are true, then we got to know how to discern the truth. So that's helping people grow in their holiness and obedience. Um, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love God with our mind means uh, just what I'm talking about in this article, I think, is learning to think clearly. Uh, the, other, the other thing is pastorally is for the uh, peace of the church. So, the church has unity insofar as the members embrace the truth. Uh, the, the, our unity is built around the truth. First of all, the embodiment of truth in Jesus, who said, I am the way and the truth. And uh, But also not only the word incarnate, but the word written, uh, thy word is truth, Jesus said. So it's the truth that unites us, and the enemy has always... Um, found a way to divide us, it is always through deception. It's always through lies. So the division comes as a result of the deception. So maintaining the peace and harmony of the church, it's very, very important to uh, at least be able to recognize logical fallacies. And then um, 
not only for pastoral reasons and theological reasons, but also for apologetical reasons. And what I mean by that is we're called to be ambassadors uh, for Christ and to represent Him uh, to an unbelieving world. So we're to be able to, uh, if we're asked about uh, the reason for our hope, we're, we're supposed to make a defense yet with respect and uh, with gentleness but to be able to make that apology, that defense. And, um, and so to, to be believable, we have to be credible. And to be credible means we have to have a reputation for reasonableness. And um, it's interesting, it seems like, seems to me that both the Old Testament and the New Testament begin with a conspiracy theory that's designed to mm. uh, divide God's people and deceive them. So the first one, of course, is when uh, the serpent questions God's word and his character, and he says uh, that, you know, the reason God doesn't want you to eat from this fruit is because he knows you'll be like God. So he's accusing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit of conspiring to deceive or somehow deprive Adam and Eve from what they, they deserve. In other words, uh, he's trying to keep good from you. That's a conspiracy theory, and they fall for it. They're gullible, and they fall for it. Um, the the other one, in the New Testament, Matthew starts off and gives us the, the gospel of Jesus, but after his resurrection, uh, the, the story that it's used to uh, negate that, and that's been used for, for, uh, by skeptics for you know, 2,000 years now, is that the disciples stole the body, and then conspired together to deceive people. And so they explain the rise of Christianity is the result of these early Christians just being gullible people who believe conspiracy theories. So every time Christians today fall for conspiracy theories, they feed the narrative of skeptics who say, well, Christianity is just the result of gullible people believing things they want to believe. And as such, uh, in that credibility aspect, in your piece, you use the term or the phrase strategic hesitation. You recommend yeah. people practice strategic hes hesitation before accepting something is true. Right. Because some some conspiracy theories are true, right? Not, yeah. not all of them are false. And so uh, to people um, who are Christians or people who believe in evidence, so we, we come to believe things not in spite of evidence, but because of the evidence. That's why God is gracious to accommodate our need for evidence and the, the vast amount of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Christianity is the only religion built on the on historical, verifiable, falsifiable propositions. And um, and so the evidence is there, This the historical evidence for the resurrection, for example. So we need to be people of evidence. And so it would be just as wrong to accept a conspiracy theory in the face of no evidence as it would be to or I reject a theory until we've had a chance to examine the evidence. Uh, so that's all I'm saying. In strategic hesitation, mm -hmm. uh, we don't go public with our opinions until we have some really good evidence, especially if they're huge, you know, opinions with a lot of implications. I give an example. You probably heard this. A major evangelical seminary announced the death of their president emeritus because, uh, I won't mention the name, but he, he, someone was at a conference, 
and they heard that he had died and they had to retract the statement. He's still very much alive. It was a surprise for him to read that. <laughs> so, so what what I mean in this age of uh, social media and the Internet, information can travel quickly, but so does misinformation. And so strategic hesitation is you don't have to have you don't have to be the first person to you know come out with a position on this. It would, it's probably better to give it some time and weigh the evidence before you go public. Well, to dive into these, uh, the seven uh, common fallacies in an age of outrage uh, that you write about, uh, the first one is uh, the hasty conclusion fallacy. And I wonder if you could explain that for us, maybe an example. Basically, it's it's hearing something, you, you hear some evidence that's relevant, but it's insufficient. And you, you sometimes we call it rush to judgment, or we jump to conclusions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear something, and then we assume... Uh, we know uh, we we draw a conclusion based on the little evidence that we've had. I one of the illustrations I use here is I had a short in a I used to have a Toyota, and I had a short in a in the wiring system for the horn. And every time I would stop and the my weight would shift in the seat, it would the horn would just honk without me <laughs> doing anything. Oh boy! And the people in front of me, uh, you know, um, just hastily assumed that I was looking for a fight. In fact, I almost got into a few fights, but that's not what, at all what was happening. So a lot of times we just assume uh, based on the little evidence we have, we jump to a conclusion. And when we do that, oh, man, we it, it we lose credibility. Um, essentially, what I'm asking for here is that we apply the golden rule in our thinking and for people to give we want we expect people to give us the benefit of the doubt and they ex, and we expect them to understand us before we di- they disagree with us and and love says i'm going to love you enough to understand you before i disagree with you because i a lot of times i found that i don't really disagree with them and once we define some terms and got some more evidence we're we're on the same page mm. So, you know, there's just that sage advice in James chapter one, uh, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. That could save a lot of relationships, friendships and marriages. Well, the second one is the argument by repetition fallacy. And again, if you could explain that, give an example and maybe what scripture might say to it. All the research shows that the, the more we hear a lie, the more likely it is that we believe it. You know, the, the first time you hear it, you think, ah, I don't know about that. But if if uh, the information uh, systems and platforms that we choose keep telling us the same thing over and over again, eventually we give into it. Uh, and so this is this is made famous, for example, uh, during uh, Hitler's regime and the disinformation uh, strategies that they used with the big lie. Uh, in Mein Kampf, for example, his anti-Semitism, the uh, idea that his conspiracy theory that uh, Jewish people were uh, in positions of power trying to take over the world, so they had to be stopped. Well, that got told over and over and over again uh, in Germany. We look at how, how could the Holocaust happen, and the way it happened was this big lie was just repeated over and over again until it seemed like everybody else was b- believing it, so I'm going to believe it. And uh, so the, it doesn't just because you say it over and over again doesn't make it true. That's the that's mm-hmm. the basic line here. Jesus um, was frequently and confidently lied about until the, the culture believed it. He, he was eventually rejected and killed. 
because he was falsely accused. He was lied about, but that lie just kept getting told over and over again. Well, next, the ad hominem fallacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big one. I know this, this uh, is, is very common. Uh, tell us about it, how we can spot it. Yeah, it's very common. Uh, probably one of the most common is uh, instead of dealing with a person's argument and make personal attacks, uh, it's kind of a, a version of a red herring fallacy. In other words, they distract away from the real issues. And this is what politics today, and I'm not saying that these days is the first time that it ever happened in politics. Right. It's always been, American politics has always ha- been uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, was attacked and personally insulted in the election of 1800 for his religious beliefs. Uh, mm. But the, so it's always been there. But I think fewer and fewer people recognize it. They're convinced by it, but they're persuaded by insults and name calling. Uh, you attach a pejorative name to somebody or make fun of their name or their physical appearance uh, or where they came from or the way they talk. Uh, and and you can, none of that is rational. It just it affects people's feelings, uh, but it doesn't have anything to do with the, with the, actually the argument. Uh, and then, so when you do that, it's, it's an intellectually la- lazy way to argue. For example, in the evangelical world, this has become real common. If you disagree with someone that you think is left of you, you just use the pejorative term woke. You call them woke. And uh, then you don't have to, do any hard work of of intellectually explaining what you mean by that. First of all, you got to define the term. Mm-hmm. So many people use it differently. Uh, so just calling them a name, that's that's not an argument. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said the, the principal uh, objection I have uh, with quarreling is that it ruins a good argument. <laughs> and, and it's on the left and the right, the name calling. That's right. It's uh, no, nobody's uh, nobody's uh, innocent, uh, right? And and most most evangelicals are on the right, uh, and so they can see it when the left does it. All I'm asking is, let's see it when our side does it too. And is there some truth to an ad hominem argument? I mean, uh, it, it, would you would it be right to maybe not trust someone so well who who leads an immoral lifestyle, for example? Sure. Uh, the ad hominem fa- fallacy doesn't mean you can't look at a person's character. And this goes back to uh, Ar- Aristotle's three modes of persuasion, uh, which are uh, one is logos, which is, is there a logical argument? Pathos is the appeal to emotion, which is really persuasive if it's built on a good argument. And the other is ethos. Does the person have credibility? Is, th- is this person a moral authority? I mean, if John the Baptist had gone to uh, King Herod, and uh, called him out over his sexual immorality while John the Baptist was sleeping with his girlfriend, then people wouldn't listen to him. Uh, what I'm saying is that in the end, it's still wrong. At, you know, King Herod should, still shouldn't have done what he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, it, sh- it shouldn't, an ad hominem shouldn't uh, cause us to immediately dismiss a person's argument, but it should cause us to question it, to dig deeper behind it because they might have some different motives there. Well, the next uh, of these common fallacies uh, in an age of outrage, uh, Pastor Bateman, you write about the double standard fallacy. And, and, and what is that? And I think you, you, you say that we see that in the church and in the culture. Oh, yeah. And, well, this goes back to Jesus saying, and Jesus saw it too. You know, he saw it with the Pharisees. 
uh, and, and basically says, when he says, judge not in the Sermon on the Mount, lest you be judged, he said, before you, do, before you um, try to take a speck out of your neighbor's eye, take the log out of your own. And uh, in other words, we're really sensitive to other people's sin, but we're not as sensitive to our own. And um, I've, I've heard others say it this way that, you know, I, I just don't like the way they sin. Mm. <laughs> now, but, but we're comfortable with the way we sin. And so uh, the double standard is when we apply a standard to our to our opponents, especially uh, theological opponents. I see this happen a lot in theological debates. Um, and we tend to make straw men. That's another fallacy. We try to, you know, misquote them or misrepresent them. But we don't use the same standard on ourselves, uh, theologically or politically and uh, or ethically. Yeah. So uh, if we I'm back in the 90s, I I was pastoring then. I've been pastoring for a long time. Um, when Bill Clinton uh, was accused and found to be guilty of sexual immorality while he was in office, uh, I joined a host of other evangelicals who said that he's not morally fit. Uh, I think not. That's that's not that's just a the theological doctrinal view. That was the view I think of our founders as well, who who recognized that moral fitness was an important part. If you read the Federalist Papers, an important part of the executive qualifications. You know, the moral fitness for uh, Democrats and Republicans. That. That's that's uh, what I'm arguing for here. Well, the next fallacy, and uh, my guest, by the way, is Pastor Steve Bateman, pastor of First Bible Church in Decatur, Alabama, and uh, one of our speakers here on Pilgrim Radio as well. The next fallacy, the suppressed evidence fallacy, and that sounds like what presenting your case in the most glowing terms and leaving out things that might tend to detract from it. Right. And, and anyone who's ever done a master's degree, if you've ever done a master's thesis or a doctoral t- dissertation, if you ever do research, you know that you uh, come across information. You, you have a thesis that you want to prove and you, you're you looking for evidence to prove it. And then you'll come across things that kind of weaken it. And the temptation is to kind of set that aside. <laughs> um, the uh, And that that's an intellectual discipline to not do that. Um, and so in the media, we're, we're just getting assailed with all kinds of messages, and we, there's some things we want to believe, again, whether it's theologically or politically. But And then we go, this is why it's so important not to go too public too soon on an issue. Once the evidence starts to surface that you may have gotten it wrong, you can either double down in pride and and keep ignoring the evidence that's resurfacing, or you can say, you know, I think I got that wrong, and now the evidence is showing something else. Uh, but that takes a lot of discipline and humility. I, I think that's humility is one of the things that is so important in the search for truth and discernment. How does a, a 1770 John Adams quote apply to the suppressed evidence fallacy? Oh, I, yeah, that's I mean that's a great story. You, People often quote John Adams. Uh, they may not know John Adams said it when he said facts are stubborn things. Uh, if they know John Adams said it, they don't know the context of it. But John Adams was appointed to defend the British soldiers who uh, were part of the Boston Massacre mm. and in 1770. And uh, you can imagine most of the colonists in Boston, were uh, they'd already decided 
what, what, hey, if you have, if you read about the Boston massacre, you know what? It's not as cut and dry as you might think it is. It's not. It was a it was a mob that was angry and things got out of hand. And whenever things get out of hand and they're angry people and loaded guns, bad things happen. And uh, as a result, he he defended uh, these British soldiers, even though he didn't like the British occupation. Um, and and they were accused of murder. And as a result of his defense, he said to the jury that facts are stubborn things. As much as you may, may want something else to be true, uh, this is where the evidence is leading us. And he saved their lives. N none of them were found guilty of murder. Well, the next one, appeal to celebrity uh, fallacy. The appeal to celebrity fallacy, again, that's something I think we right away can, can realize how much credibility we put in uh, somebody just because they're publicly known whether or not they're actually e equipped to make, to render an opinion on this but to tell us how powerful uh that is well because people don't have time or inclination or the ability to do this research all of us necessarily have to trust other people uh, who are in an area of expertise yep. uh, during the pandemic i have several I've, about nine or ten doctors in my church, and I would often they they have access to peer reviewed journals. They know more about this stuff than I do, uh, and it's interesting. A lot of people uh, all of a sudden became experts in uh, in this area who had, you know might have a, their degree in elementary education, but they knew more than the doctors in my church. And uh, and so what happens is you have to trust people, but then, but you have to eventually ask, why do I trust this person? Is it just because they're a celebrity and why are they a celebrity? Who put them in this position? And so I used two examples in the article. So I don't, uh, I'm an equal opportunity offender. Mm -hmm. uh, one is Rachel Maddow on the left and the other is Tucker Carlson on the right. Both of them sued for defamation and things that they said. Both of them escaped um, any uh, legal consequences because their their lawyers argued in court that they no one expects them to be taken seriously. Uh, in other words, news has there's so much overlap between news and entertainment now that celebrities in a lot of the media are not applying journalistic standards of ethics. They know what will inform and grab attention. They share opinions, and so they're not held to a standard of, of being factual, and and legally, that's why they can get away with it. You know, this is like like Taylor Swift. I'm sure is a nice person, but if she says something on a cultural issue, there are a lot of people who are going to believe it mm -hmm. because Taylor Swift said it. And uh, all I'm saying is, you know, okay, hold on, just because a celebrity said it, that that's a common fallacy that's been around for a long time. Then the last one, the appeal to motive fallacy. What's that? And, and what guidance does the scripture give? The appeal to motive fallacy is dismissing a person's claim or proposition because you judge their motives to be malicious. Uh, it might be uh, that they're trying to destroy someone else or they're trying to enrich themselves or gain something from it. And what I'm saying is even if the motives are malicious uh, and less than noble, that doesn't mean what they're saying is false. And so the proposition has to be looked at on the basis of the proposition itself, not the motives. The example I, that I give is in Philippians when Paul says, you know, he, 
there are people undermining his authority, the apostles' authority. And uh, they are preaching the gospel uh, for motives that are less than noble. They're preaching out of greed. They're charging for the gospel. And Paul can say, I just rejoice that the gospel is being preached. And the reason is the gospel is true whether the preacher's preacher's motives are pure or not. The the gospel stands alone as, as truth. And uh, so, just to dismiss someone's claim because you don't, you think, you suspect their motives would would be a fallacy. Well, it's interesting too. I, I don't know if this came up in our discussion. I think it is in your article that we get eighty percent of our information today on our phones. We are being influenced constantly, constantly, and and manipulated uh, because it doesn't take long. You do, you know, when people study how, what, how algorithms work, your phone figures out what you like and the phone says, Oh, he likes this or she likes that. I'll, I'll give them more of that. And, uh, whether you're looking at YouTube clips or whatever. And, uh, so the, the design again is to keep you on the screen. So advertised advertisers can have their shot at you and influence your uh, purchasing decisions a lot of times or your voting decisions whether it's uh, marketing for a politician or for a manufacturer. There's, a, I think, a myth that the older generation is more, more vulnerable and gullible because they don't know how technology works. And uh, I'm, I'm a, I know, uh, have a very close friend who is older in his 80s who was almost taken in by one of these schemes through an email that was being presented. It was a scam, mm-hmm. and to me it was obviously a scam, but... He thought, you know, he's about ready to get all his money out of the bank and buy gold. All right. So I was I was talking to a high school student about this that I know as well, a believer. And I said, because I'm trying to understand this generation, I, I like to talk to the younger generation. And I said, do you think your generation is better able to pick up on those things? And he said, oh, yeah, he said. And he gave the example that his generation likes authentic. They like things that are more authentic. Mm-hmm. That's what they're drawn to. So what we're finding is that the younger generation is has to be taught probably even more so about digital literacy, uh, about lateral reading, um, about triangulation on sources. You know, th- there's just some skills that have to be learned in this generation to be able to discern those truths. Well, and when you say triangulation, uh, what, what, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, I'm, it's like, uh, like your cell phone, the way they pinpoint where your cell phone is, they triangulate maybe off of three towers. Uh, when a, when a prosecutor goes in to make a case, the more witnesses he has on this side, the better, because the more credible witnesses you have, the more likely you, they may see it from a different angle. But the more angles you have on the crime, uh, the more the closer you're going to get to the truth. And so triangulation is when you use multiple sources that are not of the same category. So uh, to, without getting too complicated, you have to open up a different screen to check out a different source. Mm-hmm. So so that so you can defeat the algorithms. So lateral reading and triangulation means you're using multiple sources. Now, if multiple sources who often don't agree with each other agree on this one thing, the chances are more likely that it's true. What, what is your hope for the believer listening to this as they are, are considering what you've been saying? Well, first of all, the peace of the church, the unity of the church is precious. And we're entering into another election cycle. 
So I, I, I'm doing my best I can to brace our church for that. And, uh, and evangelicalism as a whole is fractured, largely because of some of the things we're talking about. The other thing is the credibility of our message for unbelievers. We, a lot of times we, we get on social media and we argue and we use the world's methods of insult and ad hominem and double standards uh, hurting each other. And we're doing this in front of the unbelieving world. And if I'm them, I'm, why would I want any? Why would I want to take part of that? I get enough of that outside of the church. Why would I want to go inside the church and get more of it? So our credibility as ambassadors for Christ is at stake here. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Steve Bateman, pastor of First Bible Church in Decatur, Alabama, and author of the article, Common Fallacies in an Age of Outrage. You can read it at thegospelcoalition.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Tim Kazee using his own story and the stories of others to help us find our way through uncertain times and difficult days. And this Christian was was there and who spoke some English, and he was sharing with me from Jesus' own words, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions, and I go to prepare one for you. It was this, this heavenward Christ focus when he's standing in the middle of ashes and ruin and risks and, and, and ongoing threats. So I was just struck by how God can and does steady his people in the hardest of circumstances. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.